Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 73, Our Gaming Curriculum, Part 2. Recorded Thursday, October 29th of 2015, with your hosts, Grant and Peter. Welcome to Saving the Game, I'm Grant. And I'm Peter. Peter, how you doing? Much better than last time. Yeah, yeah. No longer sick. That sounds good, and you... You sound better in two different ways, I think. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, microphone screw-up, so well. Thank yeah, you. apology for some audio issues last podcast. It's fine. They happen. It, ironically, we realized that happened after I'd posted the thing on our Facebook and Twitter feed from The Onion, you know, podcaster promises, oh, it'll sound so much better next time, you know, all that sort of <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah, completely well, unrelated, yeah. and it's like, oh, hey! And the very next episode we record... Apparently, my computer selected a webcam mic that was sitting behind my monitor to pick me up on. The Onion, as prophetic as usual. <laughs> go figure. All right. One, well, two kind of bits of news that I want to go over before we dive into our main topic and other things that we may want to talk about. The first of these is the most important. We are once again doing a two-month-long fundraising drive for the Bodana Group. If you're not familiar with the Bodana Group, listen to episode 25 for a full overview of what they do. But this is a group run by a guy who's become a, a friend of the show, I think, uh, Jack Birkenstock. Yeah. He's the executive director. A friend of us, certainly. Yeah. Uh, and several other folks as well. The Bodana Group uses tabletop role-playing games as a cognitive therapy tool, and they specialize in using tabletop RPGs and board games for children who are or have been sexually abused. And children who are sex abusers, which is an interesting, very underserved demographic of people who need help. Yeah. The details of that, he gets into on that episode 25, so I really want to encourage you to listen to it. They are a great group of people, doing a lot of good work, and we like to raise funds for them. Because while they are not a Christian charity, they are certainly a charity that uses games, specifically tabletop games, for good works. And we like that. A lot. Yeah. So, please go out, look at our fundraising page for them, and donate if you can. It's a good cause, and it doesn't take a whole lot to help them out. So, it, yeah. And if you do nothing else, go listen to episode 25 and at least familiarize yourself with them. That is time well spent. Yeah, it's a good episode anyway. Like, that's still yeah, one of my really favorite is. episodes that we have done, just in terms of me sitting there going, wow, I'm learning so much from doing this episode. This is great. Yeah, I would definitely put it in my top three as well. Yeah, so go listen to that. Second bit of podcast-related news. I don't know if this is going to be publicly available by the time this episode drops, but we are approved to be on Google Play. Awesome. Google is launching a Google Play podcast kind of to compete with iTunes and its dominance on the podcast front. Now, I have no idea if this is going to end up like Google Plus and its sad attempt to compete with Facebook, or if this is going to end up being something viable. I, I literally have no idea, but it costs us nothing to sign up for it. So I said, hey, you know what? Let me go ahead and get it on there. So if you use an Android device to listen to us, you may find Google Play Podcasts helpful. Well, and I mean, we use Google Hangouts to do our recording, yeah. so... Yeah, I mean, I have nothing... It seems fitting. I have nothing at all against the Google infrastructure. That's what we use for everything involved in this recording process, aside from yeah. Audacity. The the uh, Yeah, it's like, let's see here, we're on a Google Hangout, we're looking at a Google Doc, it's like... Google is really a very nice podcast in Google does 90% of, of our research... Oh, wait, hold on, did I say <laughs> yeah. that out loud? Uh, um... Yeah. Only 90%. Well, sometimes I go straight to Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If that is easier for you, we will be listed on there. Again, I don't know whether or not that'll happen and be publicly available by the time this episode drops, because I don't know their launch schedule, their rollout schedule for that. But hey, there we are. So hooray. Cool. The only other bit of news I have is that Clockwork Empires is eating my life, and I need help. I desperately need help. <laughs> If somebody hey, can save me... Clockwork Empires is eating your life like your colonists are eating the black fungus from the forest. Or, and each other, and things that they really shouldn't be eating that aren't human like flesh. Like each other? <laughs> yeah. Fish people, aurochs, angry dodos, Dodo birds, giant beetles, yeah. 
horrible land leech death worms. Basically whatever they can get their hands on because they're all starving and mad. Wow. Okay, that was grim. I should probably <laughs> explain. Yeah, you really probably should. We've, we've let that hang without context for long enough. But that's the fun of it. All right. So Clockwork Empires is a game that's currently in alpha that I've been excited about since it was first announced. Which was several years ago. Uh, it's yeah. been in alpha for a while. Yeah, it has. It's by Gaslamp Games, who most of you will know because they did Dungeons of Dreadmore, which was awesome and had a lot of really good DLC packages and free updates and is just generally a very good game. It's basically the roguelike genre really spruced up. I would say in many ways it's responsible for the revitalization of the roguelike genre, specifically the roguelike genre that is not the action-packed roguelike genre like The Binding of Isaac or something like that. But they have that same, hey, let's explore, see what this does. Oh, it killed me. Let me try again. You know, learn from repeated death, go deeper in the dungeon kind of methodology, which is great. It's really cool. Clockwork Empires, in a way, is their take on Dwarf Fortress. It's essentially, here is a colony, or specifically, here are a few colonists, some supplies, get to work building and maintaining your environment. But it's got this kind of steampunk Lovecraftian theme integrated throughout. I don't want to say bolted on, because that makes it sound secondary. It's really not secondary at all. And the other cool thing that they're doing is they're really focusing hard on emergent gameplay from colonist memories and emotions and that sort of thing. So, you know, somebody has something happen to them, and that sets off a chain of events which currently ends up in a cannibalistic death spiral nine times out of ten. Because A, I'm kind of bad at the game, uh, although much better now that my wife is helping me. And B, greed is a thing on my end. I always want more colonists than I can actually support. It goes badly, because they get hungry. <laughs> and then they start eating things that they shouldn't be eating. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sure, it starts with, uncooked food instead of cooked food, and then it's like, oh, well, these fish people look really, really tasty, and we just killed them. No one's going to miss them. And then it just goes downhill from there. It's rough. It, it also bears mentioning that the folks at Gaslamp kind of infuse everything with this wry sense of humor. Yes. Including their patch notes, which are the most entertaining patch notes probably in the history of video games, I would guess. They're fantastic. Their development blog, which is updated weekly, is really, really good. I will also say that the humor is suffused through the game, which I really enjoy. The game is still an alpha. It's inexpensive because it is an alpha. If you enjoy getting in on the ground floor on really good games, especially... Weird ones? <laughs> weird games where you have a lot of creative control over what's going on, I really recommend it. It's a lot of fun. And... Honestly, I also recommend doing anything that supports the people who work for Gaslamp. <laughs> they, they are fun people. Also, yeah. follow them on Twitter because, oh my goodness, they're hilarious. Oh yes, definitely do that. They're good people. This has actually turned into my wife and I's thing that we do kind of on our nights together is we'll sit down and play Clockwork Empires together on one computer. Just like, all right, what do you think we should do next? Uh, let's do that. Okay, let's plan it out and go. <laughs> You've moved um, off of Diablo, huh? Yeah, we've given... Uh, Chrissy said she caught herself starting to watch Let's Play videos, so... Oh, dear. Yeah, she's hooked. She's really hooked. If she's <laughs> like, well, YouTube has more of this. Hmm. That's that's generally a good sign that you found a... It's a good kind sign. Of the, the vein of entertainment there that you can mine out. Yeah. Also, my previous record in terms of colony survival was 11 days, and then Chrissy and I, our first game together, went to 49 days. Oh, nice. Yeah, so... That That's went quite really the improvement. Well. Yeah. Yeah, that went shockingly well. I don't think my colony lasted anywhere near that long. Yeah. All right. Enough gushing about that game. We will be talking about it more just because, yeah. I may do Because some, we're us. <laughs> I may do some actual play videos. I, I've been thinking of live streaming it if I can get it working. My problem is I'm on Wi-Fi, so yeah, streaming on Wi-Fi, never good. But I'll see what I can do. Well, and the thing is, it's not so frenetic that you can't comment on it and still do stuff either. So that's... Yes, yeah, exactly. There's a lot of, all right, what's the next thing to do? Oh, you know, let's just kind of talk about this as we go. Ah, bandits! Ah, ah, ah! Wait, I can pause. Okay, how do I do this? You know, <laughs> it's, it's fine. Okay, let's move on to our main topic and our scripture, shall we? Sure. All right. You want to take that first bit of scripture? Sure. This is Proverbs 22.6. 
Uh, it's a famous one. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 31. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So our topic tonight is revisiting what I believe was episode 60, our gaming curriculum. We're doing a second iteration of that. Uh, I guess it's a part two. Yeah, number two gaming curriculum 102. I don't I don't know. We have to wait for a third one to be like the revenge of the gaming curriculum. But, you know, yeah. we'll call it number two, whatever. Doesn't matter. So we're doing this topic, which is basically the books and movies and games and everything that isn't a role playing game that we think gamers could get something from. And most of this is going to be GM focused, but not all of it. Yeah. We think consuming this media will help you be a better gamer or game master, or both. Or at the very least, give you some good ideas. Also, it's stuff we like and can't help but share. Yeah, there, there's a very large element of that to this. One thing to note, we're trying to avoid the really, really common stuff, like the Lord of the Rings. Or Star Trek. Yeah, these are things that everybody knows and everybody's familiar with, and I... I just don't think we've got anything to say about it that hasn't been said. Yeah. In a sense, they're the common tongue for gamers. We all we all know those things, like Star Wars. There are individuals who have not seen those things, but by and large, we think our body of listeners know this, those things to some degree or another. That doesn't necessarily mean that if you want to discuss this stuff, you know, in a comment or on one of the Facebook groups or something like that later, that you can't. It's not, you know... We don't want to say anything about this, and we don't want anybody to talk to us about that stuff. It's just, for this particular series, we're trying to dig a little bit deeper and get to stuff that maybe not everybody has heard of. Exactly. Or, at the very least, a 80% of people have heard of instead of 100%. Yep, exactly right. So we're going to break this down, settings, plots, characters, and themes, and then kind of move into some other generic recommendations. And my first recommendation for setting is Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea series. There's five novels and I want to say a dozen, no, eight short stories that she's written so far. I can't help but recommend this enough. <laughs> this is, I think in many ways, the Earthsea series, uh, starting with A Wizard of Earthsea, has had the most spiritual impact on me. Um, hmm. But it is an amazing setting because it is nothing at all like traditional fantasy. It's characters who are not your standard white Europeans. It's characters who do not live in fantasy Europe or fantasy America. It's this archipelago of strange places. They all fit together perfectly in an amazing setting that operates on rules recognizable and, I think, innately understandable. Very simple rules, but also really nothing like the kind of the traditional fantasy sources we always go to. Not to mention there is a ton of setting detail that she just, she's so good at hinting at little things without making it look like, oh, I'm just dropping this in there to make you go, oh, I bet there's more to this setting than the thin cardboard backdrop that we see. It feels rich. It feels right. And that's amazing. So... My first thing, Wizard of Earthsea and all the subsequent Earthsea novels, they are so good. Also, super readable. Man, you're going to make me read something else now. Okay. That's... You should. Yeah, that that sounds I'm I'm actually surprised we haven't talked about this before. That sounds really amazing. It, it's stupendous. Also, you remember where I said it was super readable? Yeah. I'm serious about that. One of Le Guin's really amazing talents is writing in very simple English. There are no large words. There are a few invented words because it is a fantasy setting, but even those tend to be kind of just one-off, hey, you don't need to know this. You just kind of want to have the sound of it in your head, so you kind of get a little bit of theme put into the setting. 
you know, it's it's a little flavor. So she's much more of a Sanderson than a Tolkien, huh? Um, at least in terms of like readability and flow and stuff. Much more of a C.S. Lewis. Ooh, that very simple English. That there's a certain starkness to her work, and stark can sometimes mean very flavorless. Right. In this case, it's very strong and very sharp. Everything is crystal clear when you read it. She's a remarkable author, and I cannot recommend this enough. Is she another British author? U.S. author. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, I'll definitely have to put that on the short list. My next one is a webcomic, Schlock Mercenary. That's S-C-H-L-O-C-K, Mercenary. All of these, by the way, we will link in the show notes. Schlock Mercenary is a long-running webcomic by a former IT guy at Novell who said, you know what, I want to make webcomics my full-time job, and did it. He's now on Writing Excuses with Brandon Sanderson and a couple other authors. Uh, He's got a very, very good career doing this webcomic and, you know, some other writing here and there. And it's remarkably good. As with all webcomics, the early art is not great. The early writing is rough. It's one of those things where you can see what they're going for, but there's no, they haven't refined it because, well, it's they an early go at been things. been able to refine it because it's still in its raw form, yeah. Schlock Mercenary was a very early webcomic. Like, it started in 2000, and webcomics were really just beginning to hit their stride in, like, 1999 to 2000. But what's cool about Schlock Mercenary is it's a really good sci-fi... I'm not going to say space opera, but it's got a certain element of that. It's a great sci-fi story with some transhumanist stuff, a lot of good details about alien species and alien worlds, and Howard Taylor is very good at taking the elements of his story and then, okay, what's the next step? What's the logical progression of the elements I have just put into the story? Okay, what's the next one? Okay. Where does that lead? And so you start with, oh, hey, somebody invented a thing and end up with, huh, the whole galaxy has changed in enormous ways as the result of that invention over the course of this story. And in a sense, it's background to what is going on with the characters. It's just, well, this is what would happen. Huh. It's that speculative fiction idea, that what if question that makes good science fiction so fascinating. And it does it with a lot of humor. And a surprising amount of personal drama, it's melodrama in some ways, because it's still a bit of military sci-fi speculative fiction, you know, hey, we're all big tough heroes doing big tough things, except for the one or two characters who aren't, but it's still really fun, and I really do recommend it. Every once in a while, in the early stuff, you kind of get a, oh, and this is the author getting a little preachy about his politics, but that quickly goes away in lieu of good storytelling, or at the very least, his politics stop getting in the way of good storytelling. Very cool. I'll have to check that out, too. All right. What's yours? Since we're still on setting, I think one of the the things that you'll hear on a lot of RPG podcasts is, you know, oh, history is, you know, is the best setting. Uh, You know, the real world is one of the most interesting campaign worlds out there. And that's true. But history is really overwhelming. I mean, if, you know, if you are trying to get enough historical information to game something on, it can be kind of daunting to know where to start. Well, I got two places you can start. Yeah, Um, real quick, I really thought you were going to say history is overrated. No, definitely not overrated, but certainly overwhelming. (laughs) (laughs) So the guys over at Extra Credit do a little sub-series called Extra History. So good. Yeah, it it is really watchable. In particular, I would recommend their history of the events leading up to World War One that had some serious emotional effects on me watching it. And then the other one that Grant and I have referenced a number of times on here is the Crash Course series that um, John Green is part of. Both of those are really nice ways of getting just enough history to to let you know whether you want to base something in your game off of a particular time period or group. Uh, they also kind of have the Pringles effect, where if you watch one, you're probably going to keep watching more, which will often lead you into stuff that you wouldn't have thought of anyways. And hey, you know, it's it's nice to educate yourself a little bit while you're doing prep work. So 
I would heartily recommend both of them. The other thing that's really nice is they're bite-sized. The videos run, I don't know, around 10 minutes or so usually. Yeah, about that. So both of them are, are kind of nice for that. And then the other setting that I really like and is kind of in the forefront of my mind, because I think right around the same time this episode drops, the new game will be out, is Fallout. I am a big fan of the Fallout games. And one of the things that I think that's interesting about that particular post-apocalyptic setting is that the starting world really isn't the one that we live in. It's this weird retro sci-fi Cold War 1950s, 1960s neo-futurist kind of thing. Yeah, it's got that government film made for showing in classrooms feeling. Yeah. Like, this is what life will be like. That voice, right? Yeah, and all of the, like, all of the promotional materials for the new game, uh, they, they go through, like, the different attributes. They use the, the special system, and they go through, and there's a series of videos, one about each one of the attributes, to that kind of a, a cadence and that style. So that's yeah. that's kind of interesting. But it's, um, yeah, it's it's a really good series of games. If you've never played it, it's definitely worth checking out. But it's also worth, um, there's like setting Bibles and stuff that are kind of up and around and books of art and that sort of thing. And it's it's kind of an interesting exercise in world building. And I just, I think there's a lot of meat on that particular bone. Yeah, I agree. Let's move on to plots. We're, start us off with plots. What's your first suggestion? Okay, then? so my first plot is um, a movie from a few years back called Phone Booth that stars Colin Farrell and... The thing that I like about Phone Booth is that the entire movie pretty much takes place in a phone booth. This guy who's, um, well, I don't want to spoil too much of it, but it's it's a thriller. And this guy is basically trapped in a phone booth while somebody else does things to keep him there. It's It's interesting, and it shows how much story you can tell just with dialogue and in a confined space, which I think is probably a, a lesson that could be interesting for certain one-off kind of uh, either games like at a convention or stories in an ongoing campaign where if you've got your player group in a confined space and they have to kind of deal with um in the movie it's a lot of like emotional and relational stuff and ethical issues and that sort of thing but i could definitely see other stuff coming up there and then the second one is i suppose a little bit of a cheat but i would recommend anthologies just in general um Obviously, I've been in the first two volumes of the Sojourn Anthology, so I'm rather fond of that particular one, but find a good collection of short stories someplace, and don't just limit yourself to science fiction and fantasy stuff. Uh, thriller anthologies in particular can be very, very good for interesting plots and stuff. They tend to develop quickly, have interesting twists in them, and that sort of thing, all in a fairly compact space. And the nice thing about anthologies is you get a whole bunch of these in one book. So if one doesn't do something for you, just move on to the next one. In particular, I want to recommend mystery anthologies. Yeah. Because there's lots and lots of, oh, that's clever in those. Uh, also, I have like a shelf full of them because I got a whole bunch of uh, Alfred Hitchcock magazines and things like that from long, long ago. Yeah. Speaking of, uh, speaking of older stuff, you've got kind of a neat one here as your first one for plot. So why don't you get into that? All right, this is entirely a guilty pleasure, but I do think it's good. <laughs> um, I'm a big Doc Savage fan. Doc Savage is a pulp hero, kind of the 1930s, 1940s, is when the stories are set. Um, I, I want to say they were written a bit later than that. There's a lot of these stories. They are pure pulp. Nothing more to say about it than this is pulp melodrama and action with superhuman characters, you know, not in a, a Superman kind of way, but just these are perfect characters, you know, no real weaknesses except for their one very basic weakness. Fun, exciting, escapist pulp. Yes. It's great. It's fun. And I'm mentioning it because these are fun, easy, quick stories. And there are lots and lots of plots in those fun, easy, quick stories. Lots of, oh, that'd be a cool idea for an adventure. An adventure to places, an adventure involving certain things. Uh, one of my favorites is Doc Savage has created a technique using this incredibly rare material to resurrect a body. Any body. But only once. We can only do it once. 
Who do we resurrect? And he literally throws it out to, for the entire world to vote on. Who should we resurrect for the maximum benefit of humanity? And I'm not going to spoil it, but they resurrect him. And then they go, oh, wait, somebody switched the bodies on us. Oh, dear. And so it's, it's a little bit of, oh, that's really cool. Oh, I see what you did there. And it's a lot of fun. It's clever stuff like that that leads to, hey, let's go have a rollicking adventure somewhere. But it's also, ooh, I could do a lot with that idea. Because that fits in all sorts of different stories and all sorts of different settings. So I, I strongly recommend those just because they're fun. And you'll get good story ideas out of them. And who cares if you steal them? They're fun, hilarious, one-and-a-half-dimensional at best pulp stories, and who cares? Hey, and, and pulp works great for role-playing games. It yes, really, it does. really does. Yep. Uh, my next one, this is a little <laughs> this is a little weird because it's five different books. It's a quintet of books that doesn't really have a series name. It's kind of referred to as the Arthurian Saga. These are all by Mary Stewart. The Crystal Cave, The Hollow Hills, The Last Enchantment, The Wicked Day, and The Prince and the Pilgrim. This is a retelling of the Arthurian Saga. From a very unique perspective, it's Merlin's perspective starting as a little boy and moving forward. It's very human. It's not Merlin as this omniscient figure. It's Merlin as a scared man who grows up to be, you know, a powerful person in his own right, but certainly not a fighter or a hero. He's always the man behind the scenes doing things. And it goes all the way from the birth of Merlin who, by the way, is not some superhuman person, he's just a kid, to Mordred and Arthur killing each other on that final day ending the Arthurian saga. And The Prince and the Pilgrim is a story sort of set in there in the middle. It's really well written. I want to bring it up not because the Arthurian saga is little known. Everybody knows it, I think. Yeah. Well, most people familiar with English and Western literature know it. Certainly many people know it. But what I like about it is that it's a great way of saying, hey, here's a story you know, let's revisit it. You know, it's recognizably that story. In fact, in some cases, she goes out of her way to say, hey, look, it really is the same story. Here's a little bit of foreshadowing. But it's presented in such a way that it feels entirely new and entirely fresh. I want this to get into your curriculum because it's good and because it's a I want to reassure you that it's okay to go back to things that everybody knows and do them again and do them well and turn them into something new and fresh. All right, my last one, and this may not be as accessible to everybody because it's a Nintendo DS game. <laughs> uh, this is Radiant Historia, which is criminally underrated in my opinion. It's a pretty good Japanese RPG, a little bit of, you know, tactical combat that happens, uh, almost a, a combat puzzle system in some ways when you're playing. That's not the point. What's cool about it is it's all about parallel universes. You are a character who can travel through time, and you can only travel through time starting at a certain point and going forward. But when you travel through time, there is a split starting at one particular point, and the universe that you live in goes in two different directions based on the choices that you've made in those directions. And you have these parallel timelines happening, and you are running back and forth between them. Oh, that's interesting. Does it keep forking, or is it just the one? It's the two timelines going back and forth. Right, it just, keep just, the, just the one divergent event, though. Right, I okay. say that. There are multitudes of points in the story where you have to make a choice. And if you pick the wrong choice, it tells you what would have happened had you gone down that road. And then says, all right, let's back up and try again. Go the other way. Huh. It's really neat. It's a little bit of extra storytelling, and it creates this illusion of this is this big branching thing where you're, as they actually say in the game, you're trying to find this thin line of bright wending its way through the darkness to get to the point where things don't go wrong horribly at the end. Wow. So you're trying all these alternatives and failing and failing and failing and slowly moving forward as you figure out what works, and finally you get to the end and get there. It's a really cool setup for a game. It's a great way to do some parallel timeline stuff. There's a little bit of bleed over between the timelines that actually annoyed me a lot. 
because they were so good about not having that until like this one point in the game when I think they got themselves written into a hole or they were they said, oh, wait, we're Japanese RPG developers. We don't care about internal consistency. And you were like, but you did right up until this. No, Dang uh, it. JRPGs. Uh, yeah, but it's really good. Good music, too. I will say this, and this is going to be controversial. I think this is a better time travel story than Chrono Trigger. I don't know that it's a better RPG, but it's definitely a better time travel story. Watch the hate roll in, I know, but everybody <laughs> loves Chrono Trigger. I love Chrono Trigger. I also have Chrono Trigger on the DS and played all the way through it, again, going, hee, it's my childhood. But I think this is a little better. Okay, then. Yeah, Radiant Historia, check it out. All right, so the next thing we've got is characters, and Grant, you've got a trailer in here? <laughs> well, a trailer and a game and a whole bunch of stuff. Overwatch just dropped, like, a day or two ago as of when we record this. Okay. Overwatch is Blizzard's first new intellectual property in about 10 years. They've had Diablo and Warcraft and Starcraft, and they have been riding those gravy trains, those incredibly full gravy trains, for 10 years. Yeah, I mean, even Hearthstone uses the Warcraft setting. Exactly. And they said, wait a second, what if we made another really amazing IP? So this is Superheroes. It's a really cool game. The game is, um, I've heard it described as Team Fortress 2 meets Unreal. It's a first-person team-based shooter with objectives. But what's so cool about it is all of the characters are very, very unique and really well-written and really well-voiced and a ton of characterization. The art style kind of reminds me of... It's Pixar. Yeah, well, it's it's Pixar plus something else. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Like, it's a little bit recognizable, and at the same time you go, oh, that's really cool. It's It really kind of feels like The Incredibles in some ways, but like The Incredibles stepped up about ten notches. Or maybe Big Hero 6? <sighs> uh, a bit of that. Yeah, I can see that. Regardless, the art is really good, but I don't care about the art for the purposes of this. What I want you to do is watch the cinematic trailer that I've linked in there, because you watch the cinematic trailer and you'll go, I want to turn that into a movie, or I want to turn that into a game. It's an amazing trailer. It's about six and a half, seven minutes of, that's so awesome. And then go out to the Overwatch site and read all the bios of all the characters, because what this is, this is a world that is post-need for superheroes. Again, a little bit like The Incredibles, where it's like, well, we had superheroes for this, and they all came up out of the woodwork to deal with this one incredible threat that we haven't talked about at all, other than, hey, they were here and it was really bad. Now what? Okay, a lot of them have just kind of gone off to work as mercenaries, a lot of them are doing this other thing, many of them are trying to start a new life, and they've all kind of split up and scattered, and they're doing things that are exciting, but they're, they're all a little lost. They're all doing different things, too, I'm guessing. Yeah, the line between hero and villain is a little blurry. Not in a grim and gritty way. Quite the opposite. It's got this very warm feel to it, but even the bad guys are not terrible. Watch that trailer, read the bios, and you'll just kind of go, oh, this is a great feel for superheroes. I want to do this. Well, Blizzard does tend to polish things until they've got a mirror-like sheen on them, so... Yeah, exactly. Also, try and get into the beta, because, oh my goodness, I like, I don't do first-person shooters. I really want to play this. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> it's in closed beta now, and I'm really jealous. All right, what's your next one? Next one, and then I'll stop talking for a bit. Ugh. Princess Mononoke. I suspect a lot of our listeners have seen Princess Mononoke, Mononoke Hime. It is still really good, if you haven't watched it, because you don't know yet that you like Studio Ghibli films, do so. But what's really important about Mononoke for me is that there are very few evil characters. There are characters who have needs, and those needs conflict, but everybody is sympathetic. Even the really evil person who you are initially introduced to, I say evil, she's clearly the antagonist, but she's got a lot going for her as a person. She takes care of lepers. She takes care of women who you know, are otherwise not really in a position of power in society. She wants the best for her people. And it just so happens that she and the protagonist are on different sides and both have to learn something from each other. And there's a third guy who is the closest we get to a villain. He's certainly not nice, but his motivations are entirely understandable. And he is initially very kind to the protagonist. And even towards the end is 
not exactly kind, but he's still not like, hey, I'm just going to kill you. It's, you know, no, just let me do this thing. <laughs> it's, there's a lot of characterization in it that is, we are antagonists, but we're not stereotypical her bad guy antagonists. It's sympathetic antagonists at its best. Sounds like one of Shannon Dixon's games. Uh, in many ways, it is. I can see a certain influence there on Shannon's games. I don't know if she's watched those movies, but she should if she hasn't. And if you haven't watched Princess Mononoke, oh my goodness, it is a beautiful movie with a beautiful soundtrack, and I cry every time I watch it. Wow. All right, your turn. Gee, don't give me a high bar to clear or anything here. All right, so... um. The first one that I've got for characters is the Mass Effect trilogy. I would say that probably as far as characters go, this is as good as video games have ever gotten. By the end of the series, there were certain characters that I legitimately felt like I was friends with. There is so much care and detail put into these characters to make them feel like they're real, to make them complex in the same way that real people are complex and sometimes simple in the way that real people are simple. And it's not just the uniquely formidable crew of amazing heroic types that you get on your ship. There's lots of interesting little side characters and supporting cast members, some of which will help you, some of which will hinder you, some of which are just there to kind of flesh out the world. There's a very kind of humorous scene where you walk past a drill sergeant lecturing some uh, some of the soldiers under his command about safety with starship-mounted weaponry and why you have to wait for the computer to target something. And it's just, there's there's so much in there. They make the alien species that they have seem a little bit alien, but still very relatable. It's actually very telling that most of my favorite characters from that series weren't human. In particular, I, I really like Garrus, who is a Turian, who is a Species that humanity doesn't always have the coziest relationship with. Uh, I also really liked Edie, the AI on the ship, but she doesn't even show up until the second game. There's just this whole diverse group of different characters in there that are just really interesting. And uh, Rex, the Krogan warlord from the first game, is very interesting. It just it goes on and on. Um, yeah, they're all yeah. pretty fascinating. And as with any good RPG like that, there's an enormous amount of encyclopedic knowledge that you can look at as you just kind of find little bits of information around. Yeah, and because this is a Bioware game, you know, and it's published by EA, if you really find yourself into the lore, you can go dig into some novels of dubious quality and stuff to get more of it. I'm not sure how much I'd recommend that. I tried getting through one of them and it didn't really stack up to the experience of playing the game, but it's out there. On the other hand, if you want to talk about novels that you really should read, <laughs> I would recommend... All of them. All of them. I would recommend the entire corpus of uh, Terry Pratchett's Discworld series. Absolutely everything the man ever wrote in that setting. All of it. Without exception. You will find some of the most interesting characters in there. Some of the best setting design as well. And a lot of... Really fascinating interaction between the two. Pratchett's humor that kind of infuses a lot of his work is based more on, oh, human nature, the way that human society works, kind of how people behave in in groups and with um, obligations and stuff, more than just silly, goofy, slapsticky kind of stuff that you'll see in a lot of humorous literature. And... I think just for that alone, it's probably worth going through and looking at his stuff, but it goes quite a bit deeper than that. In particular, I like the Night Watch novels, where it kind of deals with what makes these people tick, why they chose this, you know. They're all about urban life. Yeah. and Authority and responsibility. And what that does to people and what it doesn't do to them and how it changes them and how it doesn't. And They're full of social commentary, but it's not exactly partisan commentary it's no it's the satirist who understands all sides of an issue and gently pokes at everything and says hey look at this did you think about it this way let's change that look at it again that very gentle satire that is very funny at the same time leaves you going oh i learned something from that yeah, hilarious novel about trolls it's it's also incredibly deep <laughs> 
Oh, um, yeah. When you get into it, I mean, it's it's humorous, but it's like there's depths in Pratchett that you'd have to look at, like, pff, Shakespeare to find something comparable to. There are so many layers of references and jokes in some of his works. I'm specifically thinking of Soul Music, which was the first one of these I read, which has so many musical jokes in it, some of which are so subtle I didn't get them until my fourth read-through. Wow. And it's just like, you you did that. Oh, that's hilarious. That's amazing. Thank you. And it's also worth reading that it's so good that Grant has read the same book four times. I mean, yeah. it's... They're, these are really super polished, really highly crafted novels. Sadly, Sir Terry Pratchett is no longer with us, so there won't be any more. But uh, yep. he he got one last novel out before he passed, and yep. that was it. Uh, there are also a couple of kid stories and other you know assorted side stories, but there's this main line of novels. I will say this about Discworld: don't start with the first book. It's good, but kind of like web comics, <laughs> like I was saying earlier. There's a little bit of, this is the unrefined first pass at what will eventually be something great. All right, so where would you recommend jumping onto Discworld? Because oh, I'll man. bet you it's going to be a different place than I would recommend. Um, If you are a pop culture person and you like music, I think soul music is a great place to start because you'll be going, oh, I see what you did there, all the way through. Masquerade is also very good. I like the witches, personally. I think those might actually be my favorite characters in the whole series. Small Gods is really good. It's really good. There's so many. I'd recommend Nightwatch. And the, the funny thing is, is that one is, is a good ways into the Nightwatch sub-series in there. But I think it tells you so much about, and it's one of the more serious ones, too, but it tells you so much about the people involved and a lot of that commentary that you were talking about, about kind of the nature of police work, especially in a fantasy setting. And I will, okay, disclaimer here. I read it while I was working on my criminal justice degree and it really resonated. I, I might start with Guards Guards because it's a good place to start with those Vimes watch novels. It's, it's the first of those. Yeah, it's his origin story, basically. And yeah. Weird Sisters might actually be a really good one, too. Lords and Ladies is amazing as well. The other one that I would say is if you just want madcap craziness and fun for your first one, grab Interesting Times. That one's hysterical. It's not the deepest one, but it really is funny. Yeah, if you want a lot of good holiday jokes, uh, Hogfather. Yeah? So good. So good. All right, what else you got? All right, so... um. Let's move, Let's move on, on to, to theme. theme. Yeah. All right. So I've got moving from the fun and lightness of Discworld to an absolute kick in the teeth. Uh, Spec Ops The Line. I'm going to warn you, this is one of the grimmest, darkest video games that I have ever played. Uh, the story is very bleak, but it makes some really good points about kind of self-appointed heroes the kind of damage that powerful people can do in a world when they don't stop to get the facts, and a lot of other things that, frankly, player characters do. There's a lot of poking holes in um, military jingoism and stuff in here, too. Uh -huh. it's, it's really dark. It's really, really symbolic. It is. It's a direct adaptation. Of Heart of Darkness, yeah. Which is a very good novel. If you're not up for reading a 1899 novel, go play Spec Ops The Line. It may be more immersive as a video game. Yeah, I like I said, it's I highly recommend it. it, it there's a lot of very thought-provoking stuff in there, but it will not be a super easy experience to get through all the way. No, but important. Yeah, I would definitely say important. I think it probably spawned more interesting discussion than any other video game I have ever seen, which is really yeah. kind of a feat, considering some of the other stuff that's out there. Yeah. And then the other one that I think is interesting for a single work that contains a whole lot of themes and switches between them kind of fluidly throughout the story is the Shawshank Redemption. I'm speaking particularly of the movie here rather than the original short story, but uh, it encompasses, like, feelings of um, alienation and hopelessness at the beginning, survival in the middle. It moves, obviously, to hope at the end. There's a redemption theme, which shouldn't be a surprise. The word's right there in the title. Friendship, um, triumph over adversity. There's, there's a lot in there. 
and it is also one of the most watchable movies of all time. It's it's really, really good. It's based on a Stephen King story, but it's nothing like most of the rest of his work. It's just, I can't say enough good things about that movie. Yeah. All right, so what you got? Well, apparently I have a little theme running through this episode myself of retellings of stories and approaching them in two different ways. Because I kind of have two that I want to compare and contrast here. And that's The Little Mermaid, the Disney adaptation of Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid, right? That movie from the early 90s? I believe so, yes. Sounds right. Compare and contrast that with Ponyo, which is another Studio Ghibli film. It's the same story. It's Miyazaki's retelling of The Little Mermaid. And it's really interesting to compare the two. Both are very good. I think Ponyo is amazing. I actually got to see it in theaters. It was kind of released through Disney and uh, had some very, very good American voice actors on it. Fantastic dub. I know a lot of people get a little stuck up, shall we say, about dubs versus subtitles in their anime. It doesn't matter. This is a really good dub. It's great. You can watch it either way. And in fact, I think in many ways I prefer the dub of Ponyo. But it's The Little Mermaid done very differently. It's recognizably the same story, if you know what you're looking for. But it's a way of saying, hey, here are the same themes. Let's present them in a different way. And it's, again, that here's a story you know. Let's do it differently with my own take on it and get a different story out of it. So strongly recommended. Also, Ponyo is a great kids movie if you haven't picked it up already. It's not especially scary. It's super colorful. There's a lot of great stuff that happens. It's really neat. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, And my last one, and this was a, a bit of a stretch for me. This is as much a recommendation on the face of it as anything else. Okay. Herman Hesse's Siddhartha. Get a good translation of that and read it. Siddhartha is the story of a man named Siddhartha who is not the Buddha, but who goes through much the same transformation. I don't want to say too much about it, other than the fact that it is a very good, very short novel. If it's 150 pages, I'll be surprised. Very readable. I would just say read it. It's got a very strong theme that I I don't really necessarily want to spoil, but once you read it, you'll just feel better for having read it. Like, you just feel good after reading it, which is nice because a lot of classic literature does not leave you feeling good at the end. This is very much a, oh, well, that's better. Hmm. It's really good. Let's wrap this up with a couple of just kind of generic scattershot recommendations, shall we? Peter, yeah. what's yours? All right. So uh, the first thing that I would toss out there is just practical guides of various types. Uh, manual sur- for survival. Um, Grant put in here, cheap hand-me-down Boy Scout handbook. I would also say like a an old copy of the World War II U.S. Army Field Manual. There's these books called Sneaky Uses for Everyday Things that are out there, which is kind of fun little maker-style projects and stuff that you can do. Uh, Anything like that that you can get your hands on that's interesting to you, it's going to bleed into your gaming. You're going to find ways to use it. It's just kind of handy to have that stuff sitting around. It's real-world knowledge about how to do things, and that's always exciting. I recommend the Boy Scout Handbook in particular because everybody who tries Boy Scouts gets one, sometimes a couple copies, and they are so easy to get dirt cheap, it's not even funny. Find somebody who's got a kid who's done with Scouts and just ask them for theirs, and they'll probably be like, oh yeah, take one of mine. I have three. Wow. I would especially recommend this stuff, by the way, as a player rather than as a GM, because all of this practical knowledge of how to do stuff will come in handy as you are trying to solve problems in your game. I will actually go the other route and say that practical knowledge books, like how-to books, are really, really good as a GM and as a game writer and setting writer. When I was working on the setting that I've kind of been playing around with in my head for a while, this fantasy setting, it's actually based very heavily on Earthsea as well as Bahamut Lagoon and Castle in the Sky. Both of those I think I referenced in our first gaming curriculum episode. I got a bunch of books on sailing because it's an archipelago. I mean, it's not an archipelago on water, it's up in the sky, that's fine, but it's still sailing. So knowing about sailing was very important. And picking up just, you know, cheap how-to-sail books at the bookstore, great way to do research on that. If you're looking at something that's got a particular theme or motif that you want to hit up on, 
Get those books dirt cheap at any local bookstore, check them out from your local library, and go to town. All right, I've done one. How about if you pick one off of your list? Okay, so speaking of books, Philip Jose Farmer's Riverworld series. This is not necessarily the easiest read, but it is a big, high-concept piece of science fiction, and very interesting to read. There is also a hard-to-track-down GURPS book based off of it, which I would recommend if you can find it. Yes. Um, Riverworld, the core conceit is everybody who has ever lived is resurrected on a planet next to a river that winds its way in a spiral all the way around this giant planet. Now what? Oh, and if you kill them, they come back the next day. Yeah, nobody ever stays dead in Riverworld. Yeah, at least not without plot implications. Right. <laughs> uh, let's put it that way. Then it's just, okay, cool. Here's an interesting character. The, uh, the protagonist of the story is Sir Richard Burton, who is a real person and who is an amazingly cool person. He was the first Westerner to sneak into Mecca during the Hajj. Uh, he was the first European to figure out where the source of the Nile is, Lake Victoria. Uh, at least, you know, in the age of exploration, 1700s. Crazy, awesome, heroic person who you should just base all of your characters on forever if you want them to be heroic and amazing. <laughs> That's really <laughs> what it comes down to. Go look him up. He's really cool. He's a great protagonist in this. But because it is every person who has ever lived, the author gets to just say, well, who do I want to have in here? Hey, Mark Twain, be a protagonist. And he's you know, hanging and out just... with Leonardo da Vinci because why not? Yeah, just it's great fun. It gets dark in some places because it turns out people are not nice to each other. Shocking. And that's kind of the point. But it, there's also some uplifting moments in there. And it really is exploring that dichotomy of human nature. We can be really amazing or really terrible. How do we resolve those when it comes down to it? Like I said, it's five books and some short stories, not all written by Philip Jose Farmer, interestingly. And it's really cool. I Start with Riverworld. If you like it, go from there. That's my suggestion. Peter, what's your next one? Well, uh, I'm going to plug something that I myself wrote a little while ago. Um, I did a blog post of uh, useful websites with the same title as this. So I believe I called it Gaming Curriculum Extra Credit Useful Websites or something to that effect. So something like I'm that. I'm going to reference one of our blog entries directly in the episode and point you to that. Everything from the obvious choices like Wikipedia to some that you may not have heard of in there. So go take a look at that. And they're all very helpful sites. Some of them you gave me, too. So credit where credit is due. I never. I don't think I would have discovered SCP Foundation on my own, for instance. Oh, the SCP Foundation. Yeah. So good. All right. My next one. Uh, I want to warn you right now, this is R-rated. So if that's not your thing, be careful. Warren Ellis who is, of course, a very famous name in the comic book industry, did a webcomic. And it didn't get a whole lot of attention, and that's a real shame. It's called Freak Angels. It's post-apocalyptic, flooded London with psychic, melodramatic teenagers. Okay. And it's really good. The art is amazing, first of all. Uh, the writing is very good. A lot of very human stuff in it. And it's really, in every way, it is a redemption story. It doesn't seem like it going into it, but it is absolutely a redemption story about teenagers who screwed up big time. Interesting. Like I said, it's it's dark in some cases. It's very violent, graphic in a lot of different ways. Again, I recommended The Sandman last time. So. Hey, I recommended Spec Ops The Line, so... Be aware of that going in, and, you know, if that's not your thing, that, that's fine. If it is your thing, definitely check it out. I'll link it. Uh, it is... Still available online for free. My understanding is they will keep it up as long as they can. But if you want to support it, you can buy it as a print anthology. It's like 800, almost 900 pages of comic. So worth it if you can afford a big box of printed paper on your shelf. Yeah, I was, uh... All right, what's your last one? Okay, well, um, I'm going to cheat and plug something that you do. Um, uh, okay. You and Mike Perna do this other podcast called The MacGuffin Factory. You're only up to three episodes, but they're all really good. So oh, thank you. <laughs> I am officially plugging Grant's other project. Go track down the episodes of the MacGuffin Factory. They are in the main Inroads Ministries feed, which we are also syndicated on, and listen to them all. And then possibly go back and listen to them again. There is so much useful, tightly packed story inspiration in those things. It almost beggars description. It's it's very, very cool what they have done there. So, Well, thank you. 
Uh, Mike does a lot to make it successful, so yeah, it's it's good. It's a monthly podcast. We aren't going to produce a ton of it unless Mike and I somehow can manage to start doing two bi-weekly podcasts. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think monthly is probably fine. It It's the sort of thing yeah. where it seems like it takes a while to build up material to, so... Uh, sometimes, yeah. Yeah, but I do think uh, our last episode, which was uh, haunt, basically the idea is, I, I guess we should actually say what this is other than it's a podcast. Basically, we pick a theme and come up with objects and MacGuffins and plot devices for stories to try and encourage some creativity in people and say, hey, here's some a bunch of ideas, just kind of rapid fire ideas with little story hook ideas. And it's it's. Jackson Pollock with creative ideas, okay? We're just throwing stuff out on the canvas and seeing what comes out of it. And the idea is basically, hey, if you hear something that gets you thinking, stop the podcast and start writing. Don't worry about trying to listen to the end. It's, okay, pause, follow that thread that's come up in your head, and just run with it. That's the whole point. Our last one on haunted objects, I think, turned out really well. I, I really did like the haunted objects one. I still think my favorite out of the three so far is the second one on Lost Ships. See, that's interesting, because I think the second one is the weakest we've done. Huh. For me, it'd be three, one, two. Well, there folks, go. Uh, go listen to all three. There's not too many of them yet. And um, yeah, figure out which one of us is right. Yeah, figure out which episode I'm best in. <laughs> all right, that, that's my bragging done. I, that's about all I can do. Uh, my last suggestion for this particular episode, I don't know if you're going to be able to get this in English, okay? There are five books of this available in English. If it's not going to come out in English, I want you to start writing to publishers until that's fixed. Okay. Okay. This is the Gwyn Saga. G-U-I-N. The Gwyn Saga is a series of heroic fantasy novels from Japan. It has been in publication since 1979. They planned 100 volumes of it. The final total is, I want to say, over 130. Wow. It is this massive... Story. Now, each volume is not very large. Yeah, but they okay. planned 100 episodes of the or 100 volumes of this? Yes. I, I believe it is the longest continuing... Uh, yeah, okay, yeah, here we go. From Wikipedia, the Gwyn Saga is the largest or longest continuing single writer's work in the world with total circulation exceeding 28 million. Well, with 100 volumes planned at the outset, I would hope so. They definitely did their work up front. Yeah, and it is... It's kind of a weird series. I mean, it starts with a leopard-headed dude who's an amnesiac, and it's just, all right, heroic fantasy, go. All sorts of crazy stuff. The, here's the problem. There are five volumes in English. That's it? That's it. I found two at Barnes & Noble. The others are kind of around, and that's it. So go yell at Vertical and get them to translate this whole thing into English because I think it really deserves it. It's good. I, I really liked those. And honestly, if we were talking about plots or something and the whole thing had been translated into English, this would be one of the first things I'd recommend because there's so much content, as you might imagine. I mean, it's 130 books. So get those first couple of books. If you speak Japanese and read Japanese... You probably know about it already, but if not, go read it. Uh, do, do you read Japanese and I somehow didn't know, or? No. Uh, no, but, I but wish I, I did. Was, you wish you did, because then you could read the rest I'd of I'd have a hundred yeah. books to read. <laughs> uh, I have a couple of English translations, ah. but it's really cool. Honestly, as much as anything else, I'm just excited that it exists, because that's really cool. Yeah. So there you go. Um, also, I want you to yell at publishers. I'm going to get all of our listeners to go yell at a publisher and... Have nothing happen, but, you know, a man can dream. I actually have one final recommendation that I want to toss out there that I think is good for exciting yourself to game, uh, making yourself want to game, I guess. Are you... Actually, I'm pretty sure you are familiar with the webcomic Table Titans. Yes. Yeah. If you find your enthusiasm for the hobby flagging a little bit, go read Table Titans. It will make you want to game again. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a very nice... Um, clean, beautifully illustrated webcomic, uh -huh. uh, relatively new, kind of about the way that role-playing games actually go. Yeah, it does a good job of cutting between the fantasy that's happening at the table in the collective storytelling world that they've got and what's actually happening at the table. Yeah. Like, it cuts between fantasy and DM and fantasy and players, and it's really good at 
merge I'm not going to say crossing the boundary it's merging those in the same way that a gaming table merges those well and the other thing that I like is that it neither totally idealizes nor totally derides what gamers are actually like it's it's got a very kind of realistic depiction of the kind of normal people that you see sitting around a gaming table and the way that they behave with each other I mean it's you know it's positive but it's not it's not totally idealized and it's not you know, like this vicious satire or anything either. It's uh, I really like that and appreciate that about it. All right. I think that's about it. Yeah, I think I think that's about all I got. <laughs> yeah, uh, we've run long and I'm dreading the editing process, but I still think this has been really good. Yeah. One last note. If you have not reviewed us on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play Podcasts, I suppose, um, take a minute to do that. That helps us a ton. And if you haven't shared us out to all of your friends and family and coworkers and people you know on the street, do that. That also helps us a lot. Don't just Absolutely. Yell, don't yell our URL at people on the street. That's probably bad. But Yeah, it's kind of rude. Yeah, a little bit. Also, it's kind of weird and random. But share us around. That does help. And uh, from all of us here at Saving the Game, have a good one. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. Yep. See you later, folks. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.